you have a Bible with you, please take it and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. If you are new to Covenant Presbyterian Church, uh, for quite a bit of time now we've been working our way through the Gospel of John, but uh, seven weeks ago we took a a pause uh, in chapter 12 of John's Gospel in order to to work through Romans chapter 8 together. And uh, it has been a rich time in this portion of God's Word. This morning I want to read for you verses 31 through 39 of Romans chapter 8 as we bring this brief series to a close. Um, If you don't have a Bible but you'd like to follow along, there should be one in the seat back in front of you, and you can find your way to Romans chapter 8. Um, So, if you're able to stand, I would ask you to please do so as I read this portion of God's Word, being reminded, of course, that it is God's Word. This is not the wisdom of man, Um, but as God's Word, it comes to us with His authority and with His goodness. Um, It speaks His truth, His redeeming truth, as you will see. It applies the Gospel to us in very special ways, and through it, um, the Spirit Himself will surely be at work in our hearts. So Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, this is God's word, let's give it our full attention. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. Now, our Father and our God, we ask that in the reading and proclaiming of your word, you would apply it to our hearts in such a way to conform us more to Christ, to trust in you more, to believe you more, to love you more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, some commentators have observed that Paul concludes this portion of this wonderful portion of Romans, he concludes it with something that almost sounds like an exhale. He's been building and building and building, and now it's as though there is this exhalation in the form of a question where he says, what shall we say now to all these things? What then will be our response to this? What can we possibly say that is fitting for this incredible body of truth, for this gospel, for this Jesus, for this forgiveness, this salvation, 
this Savior and His redeeming blood. What can we possibly say? What words are there to give in response to this kind of truth? And remember where we've been. Again, if you have your Bible on your lap, look at the very beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. Let's just remember where we've been. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Skip over to verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Or what about verse 18? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And of course, where would we be without verse 28? And we know that For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to all of this? Well says Paul, I'm going to help you answer that. And I'm going to do so with five questions. And there is something of a, if I can coin a phrase, there's something of a sanctified swagger in the way that Paul goes about posing these five questions. Or call it a holy confidence. Is that better? But there is, there is. John Stott describes it this way. He says, Paul hurls them, that is these five questions, he says he hurls them into space, as it were, in a spirit of bold defiance. He challenges anybody and everybody in heaven, earth, or hell to answer them and to deny the truth which they contain. Isn't that good? Paul is saying, do you want a shot at the title? Then step up, because I've got some questions for you. And like a skilled defense attorney, who is 100% sure of an acquittal. He dares anyone to bring a charge against, to prosecute, to find any guilt to apply to God's foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified people. Now look at that first question. It's right there in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us. Now, Paul is using a literary technique here whereby he presses an assertion but does so with a rhetorical question. Because, see, there's not a single hint of uncertainty in Paul as he asks that. Don't hear Paul saying, you know, if God is for us because, I mean, bottom line, really, we don't know, do we? I mean, who can tell? He may be, he may not be, but let's, let's proceed in the hypothetical situation that perhaps maybe he is with us. That is not Paul's approach here. No, in fact, as it turns out, Paul is unswervingly convinced 
that God is indeed for us. He is for His people. He is on their side. Now let that sink in for a moment, church. And remember that it is to the church that Paul is writing here. Paul is not writing to a political party here. And in in case you're struggling with this, the church is not a political party and a political party is not the church. Are, Are we all on the same page? He's writing to the church here. The God who says, let there be light, and there's light without the help of a single star in the universe, that's the God who is for you. Because you see, it's one thing if I'm for you. That might feel nice, and you might be glad that I'm for you, but if you get in a fight, I may not be the first guy you want there. But God Almighty is for us. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need to be laboring to be for Him, because we certainly do. It doesn't mean that we need not worry about being on His side, because we certainly do. Nor does God being for us or on our side suggest that He favors or supports or blesses everything we like or do, because He doesn't. It doesn't mean that He likes every vote we cast. It doesn't mean that... We can draft him into the service to be our personal lucky charm or the chaplain for any of our personal causes. God is not like that and he will not be manipulated by us. Nevertheless, the Lord is for us. And in a time where there is greater division in our country and more open mockery of the church than we've ever seen in any time in contemporary American history, it's good to be reminded that God is for us. It's okay if politicians aren't. Church, listen, I'm going to say that again. It is okay if politicians are not for us, because God is. And in fact, for politicians to be for the church, in any time in history where that's happened much, it's really just a blip in time. The opposite of that should be what we actually anticipate in a fallen world. The Apostle Peter, writing to Christians who were being persecuted by their governing authorities, says, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. So let's be reminded that God being for us does not mean He's going to make everything pleasant for us. God being for us does not mean that he's going to make sure everything we would like to see happen in this nation happens. See, none of this is in the notes, and this is where I can get in trouble. But we're just going to press on. Are you ready? I love the nation of my birth. I wouldn't be anywhere else unless God made me. Um, But this nation in which we live is not the kingdom of God. It is not heaven and you won't get heaven here. Does that mean that we do not seek to be salt and light here? Of course we do. Does that mean that we do not push back against the darkness? Of course we should because that's bad for my neighbor. For sin to advance is bad for my neighbor. But let's always remember that God is not obligated in His divine and perfect plans to make any nation or any government bend to our will. 
Ultimately, the heart of the king is a stream of water in the hand of God and he will direct it where he so ever wills. God is for his church. He will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her even as it does prevail against nations. Get into a conversation with me long enough about my kids and it won't take you long to realize that I am for my kids. My kids, they're all adults. But they're still my kids, right? And I'm for them. I'm for them when they agree with me, i.e. when they're right. Um, And I'm for them when they disagree with me. I'm for them when I'm delighted with their choices and I'm for them when I'm not delighted with their choices. I'm for them when they do right and I'm for them when they do wrong. I was for them when I disciplined them just as I was for them when I cheered them on. And little ones, remember that about your own mom and dad? That there's times when they have to say no to you and when they say no to you, it's because they're for you not because they're against you. When they have to discipline you, it's because they're for you that they discipline you, not because they're against you. And God, as our perfect Father, will say no to us when we need Him to say no to us. And He will discipline us, treating us as His children when we need Him to do that. And God has been for you since before the foundations of the world, Christian. Because he knew you even then. So much has God been for you that he found you in your sin and in your rebellion and he made you his own to the extent that he even did not spare his own son for you in order to have you. He stands by you in your fears and in your temptations and he will never leave you. And because of that, Paul asks, who can be against us? Who can be against us? Now, notice, Paul is not asking whether or not there is anyone against us. Because there's all kinds of people and organizations and powers and principalities that are against the church of Jesus Christ. His question is, really, since God is for us, who or what could ever prevail against his people? Given that God is for us, who in the end can destroy us? Since God is for us, who can can ever finally prevail in their evil intentions against the church of Jesus Christ? And of course, the answer is loudly assumed. No one, no thing. And the most compelling evidence that God is for us in this way is found in the very next verse, the second question. And the second question can be summed up like this. Since God gave his son for us, will he now fail us? Since God gave his son for us, will he now fail us? Look at the question in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? What a price God has paid for us. He who did not spare his own son. Think about the people in this room, your brothers and sisters, those who have gathered in this place over three different services today. Think about them. Many of them you know, some of them you haven't met yet, your brothers and sisters. Some of the people in this place right now, 
you're close to. God has knitted your hearts together and you care very much about them. But really, in our best moments, we, we love all of our brothers and sisters here. And you know, over the last 10 years that I've been with you, I've experienced just a growth and a deep affection for the people of this church. Not this church as an abstract idea, but Covenant Presbyterian Church. And not just Covenant as an organization, but, but you. I see your faces. I love this church. And it's the affection that comes from just being with you a lot and knowing a lot of the stories that are here. There are stories of great joy in this place. We could spend who knows how many hours talking about all the different ways that God has blessed us and been kind to us. And then there are also stories of great anguish and grief here, of loss and pain. And so many of you know each other's stories. And in all of that, we become very real to one another. And in that, through Christ, the Lord knits our hearts together and we become very fond of each other. We love each other. And I love this congregation so very much. But, and I, I think you'll understand this and see this as a good thing, I would not crucify a single one of my children for you. That's too much. That's too great a sacrifice. And you would be rightly concerned if I did that. But God. But God spared not His own Son. But gave Him up for us all. Let me ask you this. What would you pay for your child? And I think the answer is something along the lines of anything. And yet our Heavenly Father spared not His own Son to have you as His child. And at this point, maybe we would just fast forward to Paul's doxology at the end of Romans 11, where after writing chapter after chapter of all of this marvelous truth, this earth-shattering, epoch-making, revolution-making truth of the love of God for us in Christ Jesus and God's eternal plan for His people and the security that we have in Him as His chosen and elect people. By the time he gets through 11 chapters of this, he finally just lifts up a song in doxology and he says, Oh, The depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable is He? How inscrutable are His ways? Who can possibly fathom a God who spares not His own Son for someone like me or you? Octavius Winslow, that great preacher from over a hundred years ago, was correct when he wrote, quote, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money. Not Pilate for fear. Not the religious authorities for envy. But the Father for love. And Paul is jealous here that we would have assurance in that love. That's why he's pressing this question on us. How will he then not with him, that is with Christ, also graciously give us all things. 
Now the all things there needs to be understood in the immediate context of Romans and even more specifically Romans chapter 8. As we've seen in this brief series, Paul is at pains to get us to have a a, a, a vision, a, a, a holy anticipation for the life that is to come, for the glory, as he puts it, for the glory that is to be revealed to us. He wants us to love that, to have a great loving anticipation, stand on your tiptoes, crane your neck to see it, the glory that is to come. Paul wants that reality to animate how we live today. He wants it to animate our our hope and to secure our confidence in God. And here he is saying, God has given all of that to you, eternal life in the new creation, in perfect harmony, not only with all of the company of the redeemed since the days of Adam and Eve, but also with your heavenly Father whom you will see with your eyes. It is all yours. It is your inheritance. It is coming. And the reason you know it's yours and the reason you know it can't be taken away is because the God who gave it to you purchased it with the life of his Son. Now there are those who will promise you that the all things here are health and wealth on this side of glory. The problem with that is twofold. One, it's a lie, so that's kind of a big deal. The other thing is that that's way too small a vision. You mean to tell me that Jesus died so that I could have rusting, stealable trinkets that I'll lose No. The Father gave up the Son to give us something far better than pleasant days in a Christ-hating world. He gave up the Son to give us glory. Paul is still, still working through that with us. And we need to know this. How can we think for a moment now, given what God has given for us, that he's now going to be stingy? And you know, listen, we're tempted to think about that, aren't we, in moments of pain and loss? God, how could you? You're you're holding out on me. And you know what's interesting? I think it's in Psalm 77 where the psalmist is basically voicing some of those struggles how much is wrong and how much pain there is and the the wicked, they prosper and the righteous, they suffer. And do you know where the psalmist worked it out? He said, then I went to the sanctuary. Then I went to the place where God's name is lifted up. Then I went to the place where God's people gather and they bring their offerings and their sacrifices and God's word is read and proclaimed. I went to the sanctuary and then I saw. See, one of the reasons that's so important for us is because it was in the sanctuary where he sees what? Where he sees what's of eternal value. His eyes were lifted up and he saw, oh, you are good. I'm reminded now of what it is you give us. I'm reminded now of the inheritance. God does that here with us. How can we thank for even a moment that the God who did not spare His own Son will now withhold from us the glory of eternal life? So when the 
calamity strikes, and it will. And in those times of loss and pain, as the old serpent slithers along up to you, and he will, and he hisses out lies that because of the pain you're suffering, because of the calamity, because of the loss, he's going to say to you, you see, it's not worth it. You see, God doesn't love you. You see, God has deceived you. You see, his way is not best. And as he is kind of belching out all of those lies at you, I want you to do something. I want you to take him by the neck and I want you to aim his face at the cross and I want you to say, that's what my father did for me. Since God gave his own son for us, do you think he's going to fail you now? The third question, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, as we've seen so often, and in so much of Paul's writings in the, in the New Testament in general, Paul is here once again using forensic language, that is, language of the courtroom, legal language. And that term translated, bring any charge, is used three times in the book of Acts in reference to Paul being set in legal situations, charges being made against him. Now, there's probably no lack of those sources that will want to bring charges against God's elect, God's people, God's church. Certainly, there's no lack of those in the world saying, well, the church is full of hypocrites, or the church is a bunch of you know, hateful bigots, and on and on it goes. We hear the charges all the time. Or what about the ways in which our own minds accuse us? We dig up past sin and we drag that sin around us like a load of stinking garbage. And behind it all is our chief accuser, Satan himself, who delights to point at that sin and say, remember what you did. Who are you to even walk into that church? Don't you know what you did? Don't you remember what you did? In Zechariah chapter 3, there's recorded a vision that the prophet had of the high priest standing in the temple to do his ministry on behalf of God's people. And in the vision, the high priest is clothed not with the clean garments of the priest, garments that meant to be a reflection or a kind of a a visual sermon on the purity and holiness of God. The, the, The high priest was not clothed in those garments, but unusually instead he was covered by filthy, stinking rags, entirely, entirely inappropriate for a high priest to be clothed like that, much less to walk into the temple like that. And Satan in that vision comes along and he brings a charge against the priest in that moment. Look at those rags. Look at those filthy rags. Who are you to represent a holy God? And you know Satan has a point. Often things that he says has a kernel of truth to it. But then something happens in the vision. The Lord himself comes and he rebukes the accuser. And he says of the high priest, remove from him those filthy garments Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Which is a portrait of what, Christ, of what God has done for us in Christ, is he not? He has replaced the garments of our sinfulness and covered us with the garments of his righteousness. 
And here is why all of Satan's attempts to charge you are futile. Do you see that next clause there in verse 33? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now here's the power in that statement. If Paul's statement was, it is you who try hard, there'd be no hope. What does he say? Who's going to bring a charge that can stick against you? Well, I don't know, Lord. A lot of people. No, no, no. Listen to me. It's God who justifies. If it's God who justifies you, then find anywhere in this universe a charge that can actually now stick to you. It's useless to bring a charge against the elect because their sins have been covered by the atoning death of Jesus. This is the the power of the forensic language that Paul uses. You know, he doesn't say that we're saved because God was in a good mood on that particular day. There's nothing sentimental about it. When God saved us, he went about doing it through the mechanisms of his own perfect justice system. Therefore, it can't be undone because there's nothing by which our accuser can appeal the sentence. I'm so grateful for the legal categories that the scripture gives us for this. Because what that means is that God has saved you according to his perfect, unbreakable standard of justice. Do you ever think about that? When we think about God's salvation, we typically think of his love. And that's good. We're getting there in just a minute. But in saving us, God's justice and his love were never at counter purposes. They were like this. He satisfied his own justice so that the salvation he grants to all who believe cannot be undone. It is God who justifies the one against whom you have sinned is the very one who justifies you the one that we have sinned against places himself as it were he interposes himself between us and the accuser and the precious blood of christ answers back against every charge in john's vision of heaven recorded in the book of revelation He beholds at one point how God is going to cast down once and for all the accuser of the church, explaining that in that moment, that vast company of the elect, men and women who from the time of Adam and Eve believed God's promises about the Messiah to come, and those since Jesus came have looked back upon his work on the cross and believed that he is the Savior, that vast innumerable company of men and women throughout the ages and from every nation they john says have conquered him the accuser they have conquered him john says by the blood of the lamb it is god who justifies the fourth question verse 34 who is to condemn okay so we have who's going to charge you No one, that's a wasted attempt to do that. More than that, still with legal language, who's to condemn? So he goes from the language of accusation now to the language of condemnation, the the language of sentencing. 
And he continues to press these categories. Who's going to render a judgment of guilty against God's elect? And once again, Paul anticipates this resounding no one. And he supports it by making four quick successive statements about the work of Christ. Do you see those there in verse 34? Let's call those four Christological pillars. The word Christological or Christology, those are theological terms dealing with everything that pertains to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Paul gives us four Christological pillars in quick succession to undergird his assertion that not a single charge can stand against God's elect. First of all, he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. When the condemning voices play again and again in your mind, what do you plead? Do you say, well, I'm trying my best. Don't do that. What do you plead when the accusations come to you that you're guilty, 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 guilty? Don't plead your goodness. Say, Jesus died. Jesus died. John Newton, bowed down beneath a load of sin by Satan, sorely pressed. By wars without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place, that, sheltered near thy side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. I love what Luther said. When Satan tells me I am a sinner, he comforts me immensely since Christ died for sinners. Christ has died. That's the first Christological pillar. Secondly, more than that, who was raised? And it is the resurrection of Christ that validates the death of Christ in its efficacy to cover our sins. The resurrection of Christ is the visible Lasting testimony that Christ not only died, but he died for sinners. The resurrection proves that, secures that. The third pillar, who is at the right hand of God. The writer of Hebrews helps us to understand this, where he tells us about Christ as our high priest and that after he had offered atonement, that is, shedding his blood for our sins, The writer of Hebrews said, he sat down. Now, on the one hand, what an ordinary thing. But when he applies it to our great everlasting high priest, oh, that's significant. In fact, the writer of Hebrews helps us understand why it's so significant. The reason why is because all of the succession of priests, generation after generation, appointed by God, the whole system established by God to be sure because it anticipated Christ, But year after year, generation after generation, the priests of God's people never sat, so to speak. Not in that ceremonial sense. Why? Because one sacrifice had to follow the next, which had to follow the next, which had to follow the next. And next year there had to be another sacrifice of atonement. And the next year another sacrifice for atonement. Why? Because God's people kept sinning and because ultimately the blood of animals doesn't Remove any sin. But when Christ came, he offered atonement and then he sat down. 
which was this cosmic testimony that the work had been done. It was done. It was complete. The high priest has taken his seat. He has taken his throne at the right hand of majesty because the work is done. And there, even there, he continues his labors for our sake as our intercessor. Do you see that final fourth Christological pillar? Who indeed is interceding for us? Jesus takes his seat, as it were, next to the Father, ensuring that the justifying verdict that he purchased by his blood is now applied to us. And there he intercedes for us, ministering on our behalf. We sing that old hymn by Charity Lee Bancroft, When Satan Tempts Me to Despair and Tells Me of the Guilt Within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The objective work of Christ is the foundation of your assurance. And here we are told that Christ has died. More than that, he was raised. Who is now at the right hand of God. Who is indeed interceding for us. Think about Jesus praying for you. Think about that inter-Trinitarian mystery of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Holy Spirit within us praying with, with, words too, with, with groans too deep for words, words we cannot even hear. He intercedes from inside of us. The Son intercedes there before the throne of the Father. And it's as though maybe, and, and, I, and, and I want to be careful here, but let, picture for a moment. No, don't picture. Uh, think for a moment. We're good Presbyterians. We don't picture God. Um, But think, think about what it means for the Son to be interceding for us. Now we know that this isn't the Son getting the Father to do something the Father doesn't want to do because there is one will in the Godhead, right? One divine will between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet there is this sense in which in order to help us understand the profundity of it all, we're given these words to help us imagine Jesus praying for us, interceding for us, and he looks down and he sees you and he says, Father, she's one of ours. Father, I'm praying for him. He's one of ours. He's one of the ones you gave me from before the foundations of the world. I'm praying for him. Can we even get our minds around such truth as that? And then we come to the final and fifth question. Up to this point, Paul's been assuring us regarding the future glory of life in the age to come. Here, however, he expands his attention to the days in which we live even now. So so, so that not only is the believer guaranteed ultimate glory and vindication in the new creation, but also the believer is promised the daily assurance of God's love right now, here, today, in this moment. Do you see? Verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ. And would you notice there the length of Paul's answer to that final and fifth question? It runs from the second half of verse 35 all the way through the end of the chapter. Paul gives as much space to answering, if not more space, to answering this one final question as he does to the previous four questions combined. And while Paul continues with the theme of the believer's assurance, there's something of a new start here. He shifts his 
categories. Paul's been speaking in forensic language, legal language. But now that language gives way to the language of relationship. It's about the love of God. He's moved from the legal categories of justification, which are absolutely essential to our salvation and our assurance. But now we're reminded that the judge who did this for us is also the Father who loves us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the list that Paul gives is very reminiscent to the list he offers up in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 about his own sufferings as an apostle. Paul is speaking out of experience here, beloved. He had, he had, the, he had a road map of suffering on his body. And he's telling you as one who had experience, can the sword separate us? No. Can evildoers, can, can all of these attempts by the world, can any of that sickness and threats and danger, can any of that separate you from the love of Christ? No. No, it can't. Paul stands there as a living testimony of it. And then verse 36, it's almost though Paul interrupts his train of thought. Do you see it there again, verse 36? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. What's Paul doing there? I think what he's doing is he's he's intent to help us understand that the sorts of sufferings he's just mentioned should come as no surprise. Commenting on this verse, Calvin wrote, It is no new thing for the Lord to permit his saints to be undeservedly exposed to the cruelty of the ungodly. No, he says. No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure. And then he goes again. Imagining almost every conceivable situation in human existence. Death, life, height, depth, rulers, things that are present, things that aren't present. I mean, he goes through everything to try to cover all of his bases. And just in case there's some snarky guy in the back that says, oh, but you didn't name this. He says, and by the way, or anything else. If there's anything that's off my list, it's covered also. Paul is unalterably persuaded that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Isn't this what we see in the book of Job, the accuser? And that's how Satan is first introduced to us. The accuser who does everything he can to not only accuse Job before the throne of God, but also to strip Job of any confidence that God knows him or loves him or cares about him. God's failed you. God doesn't love you because you're a sinner and you're a failure. And Satan will labor to do the very same thing in your heart. But Paul is saying here that no matter how nasty and deceiving and powerful our accuser is, he can, in the end, do nothing to pull you out of the grip of God and his love for you. Paul begins this section of his letter with the promise of no condemnation 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The gavel has hit the bar of justice. The gavel has come down. The gavel has sounded. The judge has spoken. No condemnation. Court dismissed. And he brings us all the way home to no separation. The love that he has for you is fixed. And nothing can shake you from his grip. How do you say no to that? How do you walk away from that grace? Maybe you're here and you don't yet believe. How will you say no to this one who spared not his own son but gave him up for the salvation of your soul? How can you say no to the one who says, if you believe, you will be saved? How do you say no to the one who says, whoever believes in me will have eternal life? How do you say no to the one who is ready to adopt you and to make you a part of the family and to love you with a love that can never be shaken. Won't you believe in Him today? Won't you come to Him today? Let me no more my comfort draw from my frail hold of Thee. In this alone rejoice with awe Thy mighty grasp of me. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Now our Father and our God, help us to retain your word within our hearts. Keep it there that it might produce fruit. Continue, Spirit, your work within us, making us more like Jesus. Use the truth of this incomprehensible love to not only assure us and give us rest in you but to thrill us at the very thought of walking with you and this we pray through christ our lord amen